Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. A lot of the episodes we've had to date have focused on the public market, in particular listed equities. So for this episode, I thought we should shift focus and look at another area of the investment landscape, and that's private capital markets. Whilst this is a term that you may have heard of before, it's, it's possibly an area or an asset class that you actually know very little about. So I thought, let's get some experts on the show to have a chat about all things private capital markets. And, and if you're an investor, importantly, why you need to be informed in this area. We're very lucky to be joined by two experts this week, Sarah Soldo and George Tallboys, who are both associate directors at Wilson's. Now, Sarah's got a double degree from ANU and over 10 years in the industry covering institutional banking, corporate advisory, and even the fintech industry too before joining Wilson's. George has a double degree at the University of Canterbury uh, before moving into the legal industry with time as a solicitor and then jumping across to investment banking before joining Wilson's. Sarah, George, welcome to the Invested Best podcast. Thanks, Ted. Great to be on. Thank you, Ted. Okay, before we jump into it, maybe we start off by describing your roles and, and your areas of expertise. Sarah, is that right if I, uh, we start off with you? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, George and I both work in the corporate finance team at Wilson's. Um, and we, so we sit on the private side um, of, the, of the business um, and we help companies that are looking to access capital. Now that might be listed companies, um, so raising capital, um, from institutional investors, or it might be private businesses that are looking to list, or they might be looking to access private capital um, to fund their growth strategies. Yeah, and and in, in particular, a lot of our expertise and experience um, is with high higher growth companies, um, who you know they might be sort of in the one hundred million up to sort of two billion dollar valuation range. Generally, higher growth. A lot of them in. The high growth sectors such as technology, maybe biotechnology, um, you know, and other other areas like that. The topic for today is private capital markets. Um, George, let's begin by what are the major trends currently happening in this area? Yeah, so the, the private capital space at the moment, Ted, is super interesting. And the main trend that we're seeing is, is that fundamentally there's just a lot more depth in those private capital markets and a lot more activity, a lot more investor activity, a lot more investor types who, who um, invest in, in private capital opportunities and a lot more companies who are staying private for longer. And actually, it's probably a, a good time to just explain what we mean by, by private capital. It's essentially um, investments into companies that are not listed. 
So, so you know, private ownership, there's, there's no ASX trading, there's no public reporting um, and that kind of thing. And it is important. I think we should talk about the, the different types of private capital as well. And I know, Ted, that you've previously spoken about private equity, yep. um, but it's not just private equity. Um, venture capital is, is, you know, part of that pool and that's a increasingly um, or, or growing asset class. And we're seeing lots of funds raising record amounts um, in Australia, the likes of Airtree, Blackbird, SquarePeg. Um, you've got private equity is a subset of that. Um, another area that's growing quite a bit as well is pre-IPO types of funding. So they're businesses that are raising money from institutional investors, you know, and they're looking for funding for call it 12 to 18 months before they seek to list. So they might be looking to scale their businesses, continue investing in marketing or whatever it is and to get them to their, to the point where they can list and become a public business. Um, and then there's also the sort of blanket term of growth equity, which encapsulates some of those investors and then a whole a whole group of other investors that are looking to back fast growing growth businesses um, for the, their next leg of growth. Okay, so that's everything that's been happening in the industry and, and everything that the private capital markets includes. But for a listener, um, especially an investor, why should they care and want to learn more about this area? Ultimately, sort of, this is just an area for investors to allocate their capital. You know, for, for, for your average listener sitting there trying to generate a return on, on their investment dollars, this is one um, avenue for them to take. Um, and, you know, they might be doing that directly or they might be doing that indirectly without knowing about it. For example, a lot of the superannuation funds as part of their mandate will be investing significant amounts of money into private capital markets. Um, so the big picture is it's asset allocation and trying to generate investment returns. This is an area that particularly in Australia has not been overly dominant, um, you know, sort of early 2010s and, and maybe into the, the middle of the decade. But over the last two, three, five or so years, the landscape of private capital markets have changed a lot. And I think it's becoming much more relevant to every investor's sort of asset allocation landscape because more and more, directly or indirectly, they're going to be touching this, this, this pool of investment opportunity. What changed four or five years ago? Listen, that's a, that's a great question. There's not one simple answer to it, I don't think. Um, there's been a long-term trend of, of low interest rate environment, as you know. Um, and I know that's a that's a topic that every sort of investor and every podcast like this will, will have touched on over the last several years, and and also other types of um, monetary policy that central banks have been using to stimulate economies for various reasons over the last five, ten years or so, um, particularly since two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand and eight. Um, what it means is there is additional capital available in the system that is looking for different ways to find returns. Now, it's not a defensive asset class, but it can come with less volatility? Yes and no. Um, there's less volatility in the sense that the, the valuation of these private companies are not traded on a daily basis, like they are if they're a listed company on the ASX. So, for example, during the last um, two or three months where there's been significant volatility on, on in the listed space, um, 
and the private space. I mean, the the valuations that have been achieved in private capital raisings and actually the, the, the quantity and the size of those private capital transactions have continued on almost completely in spite of what's happening in, in the broader public capital markets globally. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, ultimately, um, if you think about what's happening in, in private markets, um, there is a bit of a divide between private and public markets. Like over the last year, we've seen probably multiples and valuations in private markets almost surpass what the public markets have done. And I think that goes to one, the availability of capital um, and two, um, the, the number of opportunities that are available to invest in. And there's lots of these really exciting new growth businesses and people want to back them um, and they can see a big, you know, a pathway of the next, the next Atlassian coming from Australia, for example, um, and they can see that business becoming big and they're chasing those outsized returns. Um, so, so there's quite a few different dynamics at play. George, I might just go back to something you mentioned before, and that's the fact that uh, four or five years ago in Australia, private capital markets really grew as a, as a new investment class. I'm just interested before we move on from that, Sarah, a question for you. What's been happening around the world? Are we, are we in catch up here in Australia compared to who's, who's been leading this? Yeah, I mean, we definitely are in a bit of catch up and we've always, you know, we always look to the US for where different pools of capital will go and the private capital segment is, is far deeper and far bigger in the US. And we're seeing a lot of the types of trends that are going on over there play out here. Like for example, the development of the venture capital industry um, or the venture capital sector, um, the introduction of other asset classes within the private capital space, um, you know, and, and also the types of um, companies people are willing to back and the risks that they're willing to take. Um, so I think that's ultimately all very positive because it, it allows innovative companies to, to grow and, and, you know, deliver um, interesting products to market. Yeah, and, and actually just, just extending on that a little bit, what is happening is that a lot of the the global private investors are looking to Australia to try and find some of the best opportunities that are out there um, and and generate some of the you know high multiple returns that they have previously been able to achieve in, in global markets but maybe it's a bit more competitive or a bit harder to find those opportunities at the moment so that competition coming from from overseas is, has probably spurred to life I think um, a few of the different pools of, of investment capital here and um, and started to redirect some of those pools a bit into the private market in order to to actually have the opportunity to even be on board with some of the best companies in Australia um, before they get taken out by you know the big PE or big growth equity firms in the US and and suddenly the ability for you know a, a, a smaller Australian either venture capital or, or institutional or, or growth equity type investor to, to be on that journey with those excellent, you know, market leading companies that we are producing down here. Yeah. And it's interesting also, um, like we talked about VC, but we're also increasingly seeing a lot of um, a lot of investment managers that typically or historically only invested in listed equities have their own private market funds. So a lot of them are dipping their toe and now investing across the board because they can see the opportunities um, and the potential for outsized returns. Um, so you know a number of a number of the um, investors that we come across have 
dedicated private markets funds um, and they might be focused just on pre-IPO. So they're looking at those sort of 12 to 18 month holds ahead of an IPO, but then increasingly a lot of them are happy to take much longer um, private positions um, and continue funding companies until they you know, truly are ready to hit the ASX. Um, you know, we are seeing um, companies are staying generally private for longer. Um, you know, and a really good example there is Afterpay. If Afterpay um, was founded now, you know, you'd question whether they would list as, as early as they actually did because the depth of capital available um, and, and just the sheer volume of capital available, they, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to list to, to, get to, that, to get that type of money. I can't remember which of you said this, but I found it fascinating that uh, money is coming from overseas, in particular the US, for these Australian private capital market opportunities. Now, is this material or is this like a, a really small yeah. figure? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, I mean, last year, about 25% of, of Australian private deals um, had, had an offshore investor. So it, it, it is significant. And, you know, um, another super interesting stat, in, in the last quarter, 2021, there was around about $4 billion of, of private capital funding raised um, in Australia. And, you know, that quarter alone was more than, you know, the, 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 the previous years combined. So it's a significant uptick um, and, and obviously a significant part of that uptick is, is money flowing from, from global capital providers. So, Sarah, there is a lot of change happening in the industry. What part of this market is changing the most? I think everything about it. I mean, it's historically been quite small and it's really just going gangbusters. Um, and, you know, every year that there's record amounts of funding flowing to, to, to fund, you know, these sorts of businesses. So, I mean, every part of the market's changing, um, which is exciting, which that, that means there's lots of quality opportunities um, and lots of quality comp- companies coming through. Um, which is really exciting. Um, and then, you know, one, ultimately, um, we'd hope one day they'd become listed businesses or they might get taken out or they might stay, continue to stay private. But I think that's all really important for the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. It is, it is all parts of the private capital market, which, which is super exciting. On, on a shorter term view, one of the sort of, I guess, risks or potential um, dynamics that a lot of fund managers and a lot of investors um, expect to potentially see play out this year is less pure play pre-IPOs. So less pre-IPO capital raisings where the company commits to listing within a 12 to 18 month or, or even shorter period of time and the investors come in on really good terms, um, you know, quite a few protections and, and a real line of sight to that company becoming listed. We expect that that part of the market might sort of give way a little bit to the growth equity style um, invested market. So that is, you know, the same size company at the same stage um, who might actually have ambitions to become a a publicly listed company on the ASX or otherwise, instead of taking that more restrictive pre-IPO type, they might look to, because of the depth of the market, they have the opportunity to look to different types of capital providers who might sit with them for a longer period of time. And, and a lot of the time, Ted, it's the same investors who, who have been the pre-IPO investors who are, who are becoming the, you know, the, the growth equity type investors. Sarah, apologies as we are bouncing around a lot, but you did mention something before that I, I just want to go back to, and, and that's around um, companies staying private for longer. So 
I'm just interested from a company perspective, why would they choose this path of staying private for longer when potentially they could have a liquidity event by going through an IPO? Mm. Look, Ted, I think there's, there's pros and cons of both sources of funding. Um, being a public business does attract a lot more scrutiny um, and there's a number of controls and things that need to be in place. Um, you know, if you're running a company, you want to have the building blocks in place so um, and have the right financial controls, legal controls, and that can take time to build. Um, so if, particularly for a startup or a business that's only been around for a couple of years, it takes a while to get really comfortable with forecasting and planning and investors place a lot of scrutiny because if you tell someone something and you tell them you're gonna deliver and you don't, they'll sell your stock and then you can get really volatile uh, share prices as an example. So there are benefits in staying private for longer, getting the right company, getting supportive investors on board to, to build a business of substantial scale where you know minor disruptions don't necessarily set the company back um, and can have you know big swings in the share price. Yeah, and, and, and another really important point to this question is that some of the key benefits of becoming a publicly listed company are actually starting to, to show themselves in, in the private space. So some of the key benefits of being a publicly listed company are that you've got relatively simple access to capital. Um, you know, there's efficient processes that sit around capital raising activity in the listed space. And also the ability um, for liquidity. So for long-term shareholders or founders and, and that type of person involved in, in, the, in the company to actually see value for, for what they've put into the business over time. Um, and traditionally, you know, it's been difficult to um, guarantee yourself a, a follow-on source of capital in the private markets. And it's also been difficult to, to get yourself any secondary sell-down. Um, you know, uh, sorry, if, if that's a phrase people don't quite understand, that's existing shareholders selling to, to new investors, selling their shares to new investors. Um, so what we're seeing is that private capital providers are willing to follow their money and support a strategy um, if, if it's been delivered by a management team. And secondly, if the circumstances are right and it's, a, it's an appropriate way to reward and to incentivize existing shareholders, usually founders or staff, then these private capital providers are also um, allowing for, for some secondary sell-down in these transactions. As we've been discussing and talking about the scrutiny that can come with being a public company, it just made me think about um, the ESG screens and, and um, in particular the governance that can take a while to prepare. So I was just wondering if that's an area that is of increasing scrutiny for public companies or it's, it's um, beyond that. Yeah, so it's actually a really interesting question because um, as any public market observer will know, there's a significant amount of scrutiny now or focus on, on these, these factors, environmental, social and, and governance factors and the way businesses operate and, and you know, the, the, the context of, of the wider society and the wider communities in which businesses operate and you know personally I think this is this is a really great trend that's that's happening in public markets at the moment um, <clears throat> but you know companies don't avoid that scrutiny in private markets at all in fact um, some private market investors um, are even more focused on these areas and have an even stronger and more rigorous process around these types of screens before they make their their investments into companies. Um, 
And a lot of that is probably risk mitigation. Um, but I think a lot of it is that the, the investors that are primary sources of capital, so you know the, the end investors that are actually funding the, the funds the, who are investing in private markets, they, they have these same demands. Um, because in the medium to long term, uh, the best way to get a return on your capital is, is, is to ensure that these factors are, are well accounted for in the way the business operates. That's fascinating. Now, we've spoken a bit about all the positives um, that private capital markets can provide from, you know, the positives for the founders of these companies and the, the equity holders of these businesses and even the positives for the, for the investors. But there is a flip side to this coin, and that is it comes with risk, risk for investors and risk for, for, the, for the corporates themselves. So, um, Sarah, we might start off with, with you. Like, what, what are these risks? What do they look like? One of the biggest risks is the fact that it is private so there is no liquidity um, at the end of the day if you're investing in a private company there is no guarantee that one you'll be able to um, sell out of that investment or, or to you know the returns unknown but that 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 goes with the risk reward profile ultimately Sarah I might just interrupt there because it just reminded me of the infamous WeWork IPO that they tried to do probably three or four years ago now um, and the fact that there wasn't this secondary market that they could easily access, is that an example of not being able to have uh, that, that liquidity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and part of how you know, these private rounds work is at each round there's a valuation marker and someone's buying into you know whatever the next round is. Um, but ultimately, to crystallise value, there needs to be either a sale or, or, or a listing. And that's kind of where you get the true test of you know, what a company's valuation is. Um, I think in the WeWork example, that was propped up through multiple funding rounds. The level of diligence um, or the level of scrutiny that comes with being a listed company probably wasn't applied in that scenario. Um, and it went on for a while until it got, they got to the point where listed markets investors you know, looked at that business and it just didn't pass the test. What are some other examples, say more recent than uh, what we've seen with, uh, with that one? Yes, so Scalapay, Ted, I'm not sure if you've um, you followed that at all, but they recently raised you know, nearly $700 million at a um, multi-billion dollar valuation. So Scalapay are an Australian-based company. They operate largely in, in Italy. Um, but that's a great example of the, I guess, the, the disconnect between public and private markets. Um, you know, you're looking at the Scalapay example, premium valuation, significant funding available versus what's happening to, to the zips and, and, and the sizzles. Obviously, the mergers happen there, which is, you know, um, a pretty interesting dynamic in itself. Um, but the lay buys, the open pays, um, those types of companies on the ASX <clears throat> are trading significantly below their, their highs and they've traded off so much over the last couple of months. And their ability to raise significant amounts of capital at good valuations at the moment doesn't exist. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, another really interesting dynamic between the two different types of, of capital pools. Mm-hmm. This, this time and benefit of the private side, um, but the risks certainly exist as well. So they're the risks. If investors do want to access this, George, how do, how do they access it? Yeah, so <clears throat> I mean, there, there are various ways. Um, if you have the right contacts and know the right people, maybe in some of the VC firms um, or, or 
in some of the companies themselves, you can directly participate in these types of transactions, although that's probably the hardest way. In the venture capital space, there's a lot of syndicated investment groups like um, 1013. You know, you can you can put your money in alongside them and alongside multiple other investors into, into quite early stage opportunities. There are also so ways to access um, fund managers who, who have private dedicated private funds. There are managers such as Micro Equities and, and Perennial and obviously you know, a range of others who have got dedicated private funds. Um, so if you, if you meet the right thresholds and the right criteria, you can invest directly into those um, those managed funds that, that access private only opportunities. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, um, I think pretty much every listener who's got superannuation will be indirectly exposed to, to, to private investment um, through the, the superannuation fund managers who have small portions of, of their mandates dedicated to private investment opportunities. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, George. And investing with managers that invest in lots of different companies is probably the best way to go um, because they look at lots of opportunities. You know, some of these funds might look at hundreds of opportunities a year and only make, you know, five or 10 investments or whatever it is. Um, so I think diversification is really key um, because it's private, it, it's riskier inherently um, and you can't get your money out. So having access to a diversified portfolio with a manager that knows how to screen and manage these sorts of investments is, is quite important. Okay, now it's been a fascinating discussion on, on all things private capital markets. Before we wrap it up, I, um, I usually like to finish the episode by shifting focus away from financial and corporate discussion points. And for this episode, I thought we might switch it up a bit and actually discuss your first investment. So George, I might might start off with you here. What was your first investment? Yeah, I can actually remember my first investment quite vividly. Um, I'd just come over from being a, a corporate lawyer, as, as you described in 2015. I was um, working at an investment bank in New Zealand. And the, after a couple of months of sort of, you know, trying to figure out the way of the world, I fell in love with this electric car company called Tesla. <laughs> and uh, you know, I told told all the you know conservative, um, experienced investment bankers around me that I was about to invest in Tesla, and obviously got laughed out of the room. But that turned out to be a great investment for me. Um, I sold out pretty early though, um, so I'm I'm not a shareholder of Tesla anymore. But um, back then, I think sort of the you know the the disruption theme, the the environmental sort of EV transition theme, the the brand and, and kind of the the sway and the success and power of, of, of the, the founder Elon Musk um, sort of it stacked up for me. Um, I knew there were significant risks involved. Um, I knew that they kind of had to change the, the automobile landscape to be even remotely successful, but here we are seven years later and, and I've done that. Um, Siri, so George sold out. Well, are you familiar if Tesla have achieved much the last five years? I don't know. I haven't heard, I haven't heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, mate, I think, you, I think you probably sold at the top. Don't worry about that. Did you drive a Tesla? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't remember my first investment, but I do remember when I first started investing. Um, and because it is quite, when you, when you first dip your toe into investing, particularly listed markets, like it's pretty nerve wracking because you can actually, you, you see your money either going up or down. and The green or the red. The green or the red. Um, but when I first started, I remember I 
had five thousand dollars and i was like i'm i'm happy to put in five thousand dollars and i put one thousand dollars into five stocks now i'm pretty sure two of them went bust and they were horrific i can't even remember them they were they were that bad um but one of them which did really well was a2 that went gangbusters and then i had a couple other ones um, along that same theme that did quite well and i think what i learned was where I knew a lot about the company or the industry, I had a lot of conviction and those stocks did well. And then when I just read something in the in the, in the the paper and um, didn't really know much about it, but kind of just said, oh, this looks interesting, they did horribly. So I've tried to stick to that ever since. At uh, the time of recording, it's uh, the beginning of March in 2022 and it's um, travel destinations and, and restrictions are easing. So. I thought I'd just ask you both about what your plans are for this year and um, um, any travel that you might have planned for, for, for the year ahead. I um, I actually have no travel plans, would you believe it, Ted? I'm, re- I'm renovating a house, so um, everything I think about is um, what tiles I should be putting into my bathroom and then <laughs> how to pay for those tiles. So um, no travel plans at this stage, but um, I'm sure that'll change in the second half. Uh, what about you for yourself, George? Yeah, well, I've got a couple of plans. I'm, I'm a New Zealander um, and I've just fully opened the borders to... To citizens, fully vaccinated citizens. So I'll be going back to New Zealand as soon as I can to see some friends and family over there. Oh, fantastic! It's it's great to hear these stories of families being able to to get back and reunite different parts of the world. Okay, that's it for another episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you're interested in further information that we've discussed on private capital markets, then please head to the Wilson's website where there'll be further information on that. Sarah, George, I think we need to do this again. Thanks very much for coming on the show. I'm Ted Richards, and you've been listening to the Invested Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.